Uh, hello, my name is Grant. Uh, I've been a part of this church for a long time. I'm excited to speak to y'all. Um, as Josh mentioned, we're going through Luke chapter by chapter, and we're in chapter five. Um, and so, yeah, looking at chapter five and trying to decide what to preach on was kind of a wild ride because there's like so many good things in it, just like these iconic moments and like one-liners and kind of drop the mic moments from Jesus. Um, there's, you know, Jesus calling tax collectors and the Pharisees being kind of scandalized by that. Uh, there's the part where he heals the guy with leprosy and then forgives his sins. And we have this line that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. There's a few summary statements like that in Luke that kind of paint a picture of Jesus' prayer life. Uh, yeah, uh, you've, and then at, at the end, we've got this section that I felt most drawn to. So I'm going to go ahead and, and read that section. So this is Luke 5, 33 to 39. Um, so they, that's the Pharisees from the passage above, they said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the, the bridegroom will be taken from them, and those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old garment. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new one will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, and no one after drinking the old, old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. So I know what you're thinking. Like, why do we pass up all that good, juicy stuff for this? <laughs> uh, there's a few reasons. Um, one is that it is kind of a difficult and confusing passage, and one of the cool things about going through Luke together, chapter by chapter, is that whenever you hit stuff like this, um, we can figure it out together and think about it together instead of just kind of throwing you to the wolves and talking about the stuff that's kind of easier <laughs> up here. Um, it gives us a chance to look at Jesus' parables. We're still early on in this series, and so we'll see as we get further into it that he goes really hard with the parables. They're one of his favorite teaching tools, so we can think about that a little bit. Like, why does he do that? Um, and as we're still early in this series, um, I think the meaning of this sets up the rest of the series really well. It's kind of a good way to clear the ground for the rest of it. Um, and so this is going to be a very, like, outside-in approach. I don't really have points. I'm just, the idea is, like, let's see if we can understand this and think about how it applies to us. Um, so it's going to be very, like, teaching-heavy in the front. So if you like that, that's for you. If you hate it, just hold, hold on for the last half, and then it'll get to the, the preaching stuff that deals with more, like, how does this touch us in our hearts? So um, raise your hand if reading this passage you feel a little bit, like, uh, what? And you just kind of want to move on and forget about it. Okay, that's a pretty good number. <laughs> that's what I've always done, too, until I was like, okay, well, let me really think and pray about this chapter and consider what I ought to hone in on. Um, and I wanted to, to just talk about that feeling of, like, getting confused when you're reading Scripture. Like, that's a pretty normal thing. You kind of want to sit down and have your quiet time and come away with this meaningful nugget that shapes the way that you go about your day or whatever. And then sometimes you read something like this and you're just like, ah, what did I just read? And then you just move on with your day <laughs> and you didn't get that like expectation met. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about like, what do we do when we're just confused by scripture? Uh, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that says, where we find a difficulty, we may always expect that a discovery awaits us. Uh, 
Where there is cover, we hope for game. Where there is cover, we hope for game is a, uh, he's using like a hunting analogy. Like if you're out, I know there were big hunters in this college town, but <laughs> if you're out like trying to hunt deer or something, you're not going to expect to find the deer right in a clearing where everyone can see them. They're going to, the things you're looking for are going to be kind of hidden away. They're going to be behind the foliage or whatever the cover is. And so in the same way that if you were hunting, you would get excited when you see what you're looking for um, and you would look for it in the not out in the open clearings, but underneath the cover, whenever something in the scripture seems to be covered to us, like, I don't know what that means. That was very confusing. Um, what if we could reframe that confusion from like, gosh, I'm such an idiot. I'm so bad at this. This doesn't make any sense. What's the point? This is a waste of time. To like, man, I really wonder what I don't understand about this. I'm excited to figure it out. There's something there. There's a treasure under the ground there. Um, shout out answers to this question. So when you're in school or maybe now in college or whatever, uh, what were the subjects that you really struggled with? English. English? Math? Uh, dang. So yeah, we've got like all of them represented here. <laughs> For me, uh, that was the, I struggled a lot. I was kind of like an A's, B's, C's, and a couple F's sprinkled in student in high school and everything. Um, but I struggled a lot with math in particular. I just always felt it made me feel so like dumb and small. <laughs> and I was just like, man, I just cannot seem to figure this out. And so here's another question. Who here has had a conversation with our friend Ethan? Okay, and who has had a conversation with him about math? That's awesome. <laughs> so if you don't know Ethan, he's a very sweet guy and he is very, very passionate about math. He's uh, getting a PhD in it right now and uh, he loves it. And so I, I've hit the ceiling in pre-calculus a few times where I got like a C minus in high school and then I tried again in college and got another C minus. So I've just like hit a ceiling in my math progression. <laughs> and I was like, this is kind of a crazy question, but would you be interested in like maybe teaching me calculus? <laughs> and he was like, I would love that. <laughs> um, so imagine like being a discouraged frustrated student who feels like an idiot and then having imagine if Ethan had all the time in the world to like tutor you on math or whatever your subject is that would reframe all the confusion and frustration you wouldn't be as hopeless you'd be like this guy loves it he's got endless patience for my learning uh, progression and he's really excited about it and passionate and wants to share what's so cool about this all of a sudden you'd be like it wouldn't be so hopeless and discouraging you would feel like maybe excited like maybe I could learn this <laughs> Um, and as sweet as he is, Ethan is merely a, a dim reflection of the care, love, patience, and encouragement that the Holy Spirit has toward us. Yeah. He's been given to us to be our counselor and to explain the scriptures to us. And he hasn't left us alone. He's given us the church and tons of teachers, and we are so richly blessed with that. So you don't have to just uh, feel discouraged and alone whenever scripture is confusing. So... Um, that's some thoughts on just like, what do we do whenever you hit a passage like this that's confusing? <laughs> um, and there's a lot of them. And so it also just presents an opportunity, like I said, to, to think about Jesus' parables. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first parable in Luke that, that, that Jesus uses in his teaching. Um, and there's going to be a lot more. And so what's up with that? Why is Jesus so into parables? And why does he use them so much? So we know... We know parables. We don't tend to think about them, but there's, there's stories like the boy who cried wolf. You know, it's just a simple story. It just teaches there are consequences to lying, and you shouldn't do it. <laughs> um, there's the tortoise and the hare. Like sometimes perseverance and steadiness are better than speed and arrogance. And there's the story of the emperor's new clothes. Like sometimes a system can get really uh, 
stuck in its ways and no one, everyone's lying. And <laughs> sometimes it's a child or an outsider that can kind of see through that and point out the obvious. So these, these are examples of parables. And all of those kind of seem different from Jesus' parables, right? His have like a different flavor. So what is that? Um, raise your hand if you know who wrote The Emperor's New Clothes. Like who wrote that parable? Okay, that's what I expected. I didn't know either. Oh, wait, who is it? Got it! That is awesome. Yes, I only know that because I Googled it. I actually read it, and I was like, this is a very good story. Um, But almost no one knows who wrote that, and that's perfectly okay because it doesn't matter because Hans Christian Andersen wasn't writing the parable about himself. He was just writing the parable about general truths about life and society and wisdom. But what makes Jesus' parables different is that his parables are all about himself and his mission. Whenever we think about his parables, it's like he, they're, they stand out as his because they're about him. And that's his purpose. He's using them to explain himself to us. And so they're meant to worm into your mind and heart and get your imagination going. They don't merely speak to the intellect. They speak to the whole person. And they also, they reveal and they conceal at the same time. They're like a filter. If you're curious and humble, you'll be drawn in closer. But if you're content and arrogant, you'll be pushed away. (laughs) And it seems like that's kind of how he wants to be. So if you're curious and humble, kind of going back to that, the, the idea of being confused and feeling discouraged, if you're curious and humble, you'll lean in and say like, I don't understand something here, and so maybe I have something to learn here. <laughs> and you'll be drawn closer. But if you're content and arrogant, you'll be like, this guy's crazy, he's not making any sense, and you'll move on. And so I think Jesus, he's kind of making himself ignorable. And that's why he always says things like, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And with parables, but also just with scripture in general, we often need to catch up to the original audience. There's stuff that would have been very clear and obvious to them, but we're coming along thousands of years later, and it's not clear and obvious to us. So we kind of need to do that. And so I have a couple parables that are very rooted in our time and place here. No one puts diesel into a gas car. If they do, they will have wasted their money on diesel and ruined their car. Is that true, Brad? Really? What's wrong with it? Oh, so diesel wouldn't ruin a gas car, but gas would ruin a diesel engine. Okay, well, there you go. There's a problem with a parable. Here, forget I said that. Let's try it again. No one puts gas into a diesel engine. If they do, they will have wasted their money on gas and ruined their vehicle. So thank you for the fact check, Brad. (laughs) And here's another automotive parable. No one takes the wheels off of a working car to put them into a scrap car that doesn't even have an engine. If they do, they will have messed up a working car and wasted their effort on a car that's still not going to (laughs) run. Is that true? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I wasn't sure about that one. So these are, and I think these are intentionally very like blunt and simple, easy, everyday things to understand because... When Jesus is talking about like patching fabric and, and wineskins, to the original audience, that wasn't like, oh, what an interesting antiquated craft or something. It would just be everyday stuff that everyone knows about. Um, and also imagine if, if you were 2,000 years in the future and then somehow you knew about me saying this, you would be like, wait, what is, a, what is a car? What is an engine? Like Presumably transportation will have evolved a lot by then in some way. And so you would need to like understand a little bit about 
what all that stuff is in order to even get the parable. So we kind of need to do that with uh, Jesus' parables here. And there's, there's four things that we just need to cover quickly before we return to the passage and read it again, and hopefully it'll make a little more sense. One is fasting. And this is pretty simple. We all know what fasting is. It's when you abstain from food and or drink for a period of time. Um, it was very common in Jesus' day. Like all the, that's why the Pharisees are coming to him and saying, like, everyone else is fasting, why don't you fast? And it was a way to show like, piety, a way to honor God. And so that's why he's being asked about it. They're saying, like, do you not honor God? Another one is weddings. He responds to them by using an analogy about a wedding. And so the main thing to know about weddings is something we all already know. They're a time for feasting, not for fasting. It's a time to celebrate. Um, it's not a time to mourn. And then he gets into this thing about uh, patching your clothes. Um, again, this would have been a very everyday thing. I've I don't know where I heard this. I think it's probably true, but there's some crazy statistic where, like, before the Industrial Revolution, 90% of household items were made in the home. And then, like, 30 years later, it switched over to, like, 10% of household items are made in the home. So if your history is fuzzy, I'll just explain. Jesus was prior to the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> so this would have been when uh, things like patching your clothes or stuff like that would have been very normal, everyday stuff. And one thing that I've experienced with handling clothes is that sometimes they shrink. And I know this because Shayla will buy me uh, nice button-downs that I can wear for work, and then I'll throw them in the dryer and turn them into, like, midriff button-downs, <laughs> which is not a very good look. Um, so, yeah, just the, with the use and especially the washing, like, fabrics tend to shrink over time. And it's only more recently that we've developed some that don't do that as much. Um, so if you, if you were to take a patch, imagine you have, like, a fresh new shirt or whatever, a really great jacket, and then you have an old one that's like nearing the end of its life, and then you cut up the new one, and then you put that patch on the old one. Already it was crazy to cannibalize the good new one to like try to support the old one when the new one was already better. And then you have this additional problem that that new patch is going to shrink and pull and stretch on the old one, and it's going to tear out and make the hole even worse than it was in the first place. And so you've ruined the new thing and the old thing because you shouldn't have mixed them. And you're supposed to have this feeling of like, gosh, what a dumb waste. Like, ah, oh, that's painful to even think about. Why would someone do that? That's so boneheaded. <laughs> and then, then we get into this wineskins thing. And I read one commentary on this, and I'm fully trusting it. <laughs> um, I think it was saying stuff that's pretty middle of the road that, you know, scholars agree on. Um, so he, these wineskins, it was animal skins, usually a sheep or a goat. And then, uh, interestingly, they said the neck is what the, it was the spout of where you pour the wine out. Um, and then when he talks about new wine, that's what we would probably call grape juice. Like it hasn't been fermented yet. And you put the grape juice in there, and then you seal it up, and then it ferments, and that creates a gas that has to expand. And then the skin has to have like the right elasticity and the ability to withstand that tension. And then as that progresses, it kind of shrivels down and becomes a little bit more hard and more brittle. And so... You can only use them for fermenting wine once. You can't, you can't reuse them infinitely for fermentation. You could put old wine that doesn't need to ferment, but you can't put the grape juice in and try to ferment it again because it, it'll try to expand, and then it'll break the edges, and it'll spill out. And again, we're supposed to hear that and think like, oh, what a dumb waste. Like, no one would ever do that. That's crazy. That's so sad to think about. So now we're ready to ask, okay, let's look at these parables again and think about what, what did they mean in Luke? And so we'll just talk a little bit about that, and then we'll switch over to like, okay, now that we've 
covered like, we're kind of going outside in, like through the layers of an onion. <laughs> um, so I'll read the passage again. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new one will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. That's kind of a curveball at the end, isn't it? It's like, wait, aren't you bringing like a good thing? <laughs> Typical Jesus. So there's several things going on here. One is that he's, he's foretelling his death, and I, I would think also the era that we're in right now. Like there's a time when he's not going to be here in the same way, and that's the time where it's appropriate to mourn and fast because the bridegroom is not with us. Um, there's obviously this theme of like a mounting tension between him and the religious leaders. And he's, this, uh, people are going to like the old wine because they've already made up their mind and they don't want to try the new stuff. He's kind of predicting that he's not going to be accepted. And there's this interesting dynamic where he's like, he, especially as we get into the first couple chapters of, verses of chapter six, he's like, kind of this posture of like, I, I, these were all my ideas anyway. Like, I gave the law. <laughs> Which we're used to hearing that, but imagine if I was here explaining the Bible, and I was like, yeah, so what I meant when I wrote this was blah, blah, blah. You, you should all start stoning me. Like, that's crazy. Um, and, but he's assuming that posture. It's kind of like, um, let's, say, let's pick on Ryan. Let's say that it's maybe five, ten years down the road, and Ryan goes to his children, Jude and Joni, and he's like, hey, there's a really dangerous snowstorm outside right now. You need to stay inside. And so they all stay inside, and everyone understands. And then the neighbor needs help, or something happens, and Ryan is like, I'm going to go outside into the snowstorm. And then, let's say Joni, because she's a little brat, she's like, Ryan, you are such a complete hypocrite. You told us to stay inside, and you're not even following your own rules. You can't do this do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do stuff. <laughs> and Ryan would be like, look, I made up the rule. I know how to apply it properly. And Jesus... <laughs> that's the kind of posture that Jesus is taking. And you can understand why they would be kind of scandalized by that, because that's not, that's not the way people normally preach. And so... With this, you know, mixing the patches and mixing the wine, he's saying, he's insisting that he has, that you can't treat him like a buffet, where you're just like, I want this part and this part and this part, and that stuff, I don't vibe with it. It's not for me. And normally when we look at a historical figure, we'll say, or even a contemporary person, we'll say like, yeah, they have some good ideas, but you know, you have to chew the meat and spit out the bones. You have to kind of decide what, what parts are good and what parts are bad. And you can do that with Jesus, and people do it all the time, but he doesn't consent to it. He insists that he has to be the main dish, not just like a buffet that you choose from. He says that he's the solid rock foundation, and if we put his words into practice, <laughs> you know, we'll stand the storms, things will go well, and if we don't, then we won't. And so there's kind of a solemn warning here. 
He's saying, you can't just find a convenient shelf to slot me into your old pre-existing paradigms and ways of looking at things. I, I, I have to be the bookshelf or else things aren't going to go well for you. And he's warning us that anything less than that simply isn't going to work. The new wine will spill out on the ground. And we're smart enough not to say out loud in a church, like, yeah, I really appreciate what Jesus said about this, but not so much about that. Like, we wouldn't say that out loud, but we do it all the time. <laughs> and so uh, if you are bored of teaching, we have reached the preaching time. <laughs> so we talked to them about what, what the heck is going on with these parables, what do they mean in Luke, and now we can say, like, okay, well, now that we are approaching Jesus in the same way that the Pharisees were figuring him out, we need to ask ourselves, like, what does this parable mean for us? And so I have a, a handful of thoughts on how this applies to our church. Um, not so much thinking about individual things, but more like the cultural things. Like, what are the things that just maybe aren't working? Like, where is the wine just spilling out on the ground? And we just need to, like, acknowledge that and find new wineskins for, for what Jesus is actually trying to do. And so some of these might apply to you more or less, and this is kind of like a shotgun blast where a lot of the pellets, back to the hunting that we all love so much, <laughs> a lot of the pellet, pellets will go somewhere else, they won't be for you, but some of them will hit you and then you'll bleed out and die. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's where the analogy breaks down. <laughs> um, so a couple, I want to start with two that are affirmations. I think these are ways that we have been um, getting new wineskins for Jesus' wine. Uh, we have... I believe we have moved from analyzing Jesus to knowing and loving him more so. Instead of just talking about and discussing him, the impulse is more like, well, let's pray. <laughs> and expecting that he can and will interact with us in a really meaningful way. And so that's something I just want to affirm. I think we've moved from, yeah, just more of a heady, intellectual, analytical approach to him, more so into adding to that, like, knowing him and loving him and having like a warmth of love toward him that's growing. And so I think that's a really good thing. I think that's ditching an old paradigm that wasn't working and moving more into a new wineskin kind of paradigm. Another one, especially from the last year, has to do with just like slowing the pace of our lives and observing something like Sabbath. There's a, uh, you know, John Mark Comer wrote that book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, that was pretty influential with that happening in our community. And his whole thesis is like, if people want to follow Jesus in any practical, real-world way, there's just, all their time is spoken for. They're just moving too fast, and it's simply incompatible. That's a very, like, new wineskin kind of thing to say. Like, you're, you can't conveniently slot him into the way you're living your life. A lot needs to change. <laughs> and so I want to affirm our community. Obviously, that's still very much in progress. And, uh, yeah, it's a journey, but we're on it, and I think that's good. Another one that came to mind is I think that we kind of assume a certain complacency and hopelessness about certain habitual sins. So this could apply to all sorts of stuff, and I think the big ones tend to function a lot like an addiction. Like, I don't think that's the wrong word for it. So this could be things like the way that we use our um, smartphones or whatever and binge on social media. There's no... Very few of us would be like, yeah, I got out a clean sheet of paper and I thought this would be a great idea to spend like five hours on Instagram or whatever after work today and now it's 10 p.m. and I haven't done anything. Like, <laughs> Whenever there's something that you don't want to be doing that you don't believe is good for you or the people around you and you can't stop, I think we're getting into the territory of something that can be called an addiction. And I wanted to 
share about an example that has been especially important to me and that I think is particularly important to our community, and that is um, like what you could call unwanted sexual behaviors, things like porn, masturbation, sexual fantasy, stuff like that. So, oh no, we're talking about this. <laughs> um, I do want to say, like, speaking to this and sharing some of my personal experience with it is not something that I'm doing lightly or thoughtlessly. I don't see this as just a place to air my dirty laundry <laughs> without having a purpose. Um, but I, I do want to speak to this to our community. I think that our community, for all of our best intentions, I think we have a way of destigmatizing and normalizing things like pornography in a way that is harmful. I have a, a good friend who, <laughs> to him growing up, something like pornography would have been like, oh, I don't do that for the same reasons I don't do like heroin or cocaine. Like that's just not something that's like on my horizon of possibilities <laughs> for me. Um, and it wasn't until he got to focus and got into a core group where <laughs> his core was like, literally did not believe him that he didn't use that stuff. And he, he was like, okay, I'm in this new church community where everyone is doing it, even my leaders are doing it. Um, and so maybe it's not so bad. And so he like <laughs> developed a problem getting tangled up in this stuff because of the way that we have normalized and destigmatized this stuff. And so I've just had this like growing dream that that could be so the opposite. Like imagine if we're 10, 15 years down the line and then someone walks in and they're really tangled up in this stuff and being able to say to them like, oh, we know how to help people with this. I could point to dozens of people who have like really left it behind largely in a very meaningful and deep way. They're not just trapped forever and you don't have to be either. Like wouldn't it be so cool if we could say that to people and offer that to people and experience that for ourselves? And I would want to say, I understand how you get complacent and hopeless. Here's how it happens. <laughs> you get tangled up in it, and you're like, oof, never doing that again. And then you make a big promise, and you swear you're never doing it again. You're just going to try really hard, have lots of resolve. And then you break that promise, and then you break it at least 100 more times, and at some point you stop believing yourself. And so, yeah, you can get, I understand how you get complacent and hopeless, because there's if I'm going to be hopeful, I need to have some realistic reason that I could see something changing, <laughs> not just like a, like, I'm just going to try even harder this time, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think getting to that place of complacency and hopelessness about it, like, I guess this is just going to be in my life forever. I'll be 40, 50, 70 years old, and nothing's ever going to change, apparently. Um, it's very understandable, but I don't think we have to settle for that. And that complacency, you know, elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And that's not a complacent approach to sin. But we usually, they call that radical amputation. That's like a summary way of referring to that approach. It's like just cut your limbs off and you'll be good. <laughs> and that's one of those times where I'm sure that Jesus lost his original audience. Like, I'm, you're talking crazy. I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, and we, we usually when we apply that idea to this topic, we apply it at the level of behaviors. Like, I'm going to have a dumb phone. I'm just not going to have internet on my phone. Or I'm not going to have internet in my house. Or like, I'm somehow going to interfere at the level of behaviors. But what if we took that idea of radical amputation and applied it on the inside of the cup? And so if you follow the typical um, kind of evangelical playbook for how to handle this stuff, you maybe get some software on your phone, you get an accountability partner, you have check-ins. And those tend to be like, yeah, I messed up again. It was a bad week, stuff like that. 
and I just want to paint a picture of like a different way of doing that. Like what if we did the radical amputation on the inside of the cup? It might look a little bit more like, hey, so here's how specifically I messed up. This is what I searched up. This is what I watched. And having a curious, loving, and compassionate conversation about that that includes questions like, so what about that was most arousing? And how did that make you feel? And when have you felt that way before? When have you felt the exact opposite of that? What are your earliest memories of sexualizing that? That relationship, that dynamic, that body part, that whatever. What was going on in your life at that time? What's going on in your life this week that you might be responding to? Getting into very vulnerable questions. <laughs> and then maybe you can identify like, oh, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. I think I'm craving intimacy and I'm finding it in a bad way. Or maybe I, did, I want to be found delightful. Or I want to be strong. Or I should have been protected. Or I have something to lament. Like there's these deep things in our hearts. And what if we had like, a radical approach of like, as deep as the rock goes, I'm going all the way down, <laughs> instead of staying up at the level of behaviors. And if you find those things, like there are legitimate ways to find intimacy with God, with yourself, with other people, overflowing it to other people. And so that, that's just like painting a picture of like, what if there could be another way? And um, I've talked to a handful of guys over the last year about this, and they're like, well, that sounds good for you, I guess, but there's absolutely no way I'm doing that. <laughs> That's crazy. And uh, yeah, just like I could never open up to, at that level with anyone. And if, I just want to ask if there really is a way out, if this stuff doesn't have to be just like a permanent fixture in your life for who knows how long, and if that perhaps could be a way out, is it too radical? Is what I'm proposing more radical than gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand? And so I, d I just hope that that gives a spark of hope. Like maybe I don't just have to settle in this like complacent, hopeless way. Maybe there is another way that I haven't tried before. Um, yeah, and that dream of like, what if it's no longer just kind of a normal like, oh yeah, people, we really struggle. Everyone struggles with this, especially guys. Um, but what if we were like, no, I mean like it's, it's never like fully done, but like you don't have to just stay in the same place forever. Wouldn't that be so cool? So here's a hard transition. That was one example of like <laughs> a way that we might be stuck in like an old wineskin paradigm of just being like complacent and hopeless about sin um, to a new skin paradigm of like maybe there really is hope and we could apply this. Actually, before I move on, I just want to say there's like a Pharisee inside of me <laughs> who's like, you cannot seat Jesus at the same table as, as those parts of you. Like that is so inappropriate and disrespectful and weird. And I think that's kind of how the Pharisees felt when Jesus was sitting at the table with drunkards and tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. They were scandalized by it. And there is something pretty scandalous about it, but I think that's his heart for us. And to have that response where those parts of you are like, oh my gosh, the real thing. I've been drinking out of the gutter on the side of the road and here's clean water. So another example of how we might be kind of stuck in an old wineskin paradigm um, is that there's always this temptation to try to shoehorn Jesus into our pre-existing political paradigms. And I wanted to talk about this because we're approaching another election, and I, I would love to be wrong about this, but I expect that it's going to be at least as contentious and acrimonious as the last one. And so we're ahead of that now, and I think this is a good time for just some very simple <laughs> reminders. 
and I actually don't think this is going to be very controversial at all for our community. Um, but I just wanted to say like three things that would maybe help us um, not get caught up in that in bad ways. One is, I think part of the new wineskin Jesus political paradigm is that we need to give our fellow Christians room for conscience on debatable matters. So if you have a particular politician or party or philosophy or whatever that you're really gung-ho about, um, and you think that there is no way that someone could disagree with you except for being ignorant or evil or something, I would suggest that you maybe haven't thought about it very deeply. And so we need to, I think the category of like the things that are debatable is pretty large on this topic. And we need to have grace and humility in how we deal with each other about that. Have you pondered that Jesus had both a zealot and tax collectors in his group of 12 disciples? <laughs> have you all seen that play out in the Chosen series? They do a really good job of bringing that out. Like, here's a guy who's literally planning to foment a violent revolution and overthrow the government and someone who works for that government and benefits from it. <laughs> and when Jesus sends them out together in you know, the fictional version... They're like, uh, Simon, you're not going to, like, you can't hurt him. You know that, right? <laughs> it really brings out how intense those tensions were. And what's so cool to think about and what's really cool to watch happen in The Chosen is for their, their loyalties to upgrade. Because <laughs> they, they end up subordinating their old paradigms and even their old occupations to what Jesus is calling them to. It's finding my place again. So that's one thing. It's like a lot of this is very debatable, and we need to give room for conscience on those things that are debatable, and have grace and humility in how we work through that. And if a zealot and a tax collector can be among Jesus' 12 disciples, then that's a much larger political disagreement than probably exists in this room, <laughs> I hope. Um, the second reminder about you know, political wineskins is that we need to be attentive to our heart posture. I think the posture of your heart is one of the best indicators to know whether or not you're truly helping make things better. In Galatians 5, Paul kind of paints, there's these two roads. There's the works of the flesh, and there's the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh, are they include idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, factions, and envy. It sounds pretty familiar, right? And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so as you're getting more politically involved, as you're moving deeper into your convictions about politics, are you becoming more like the works of the flesh or more like the fruit of the Spirit? And I do think it's possible to become more full of the fruit of the Spirit in the way that you approach this topic, but it's not normal. And that works of the flesh, the idolatry, hatred, discord, rage, like make no mistake, that stuff will bear its fruit. It will shape your attitude and your thoughts and your actions and the things that play out in history. And so it's not about like, oh, it's only the inside of your heart that matters. It's that people's hearts and the real world outplay of like who ends up with clean water to drink, things like that. Those are uh, inseparable. They're very connected. And so... The second reminder is just we need to be attentive to our heart posture. And the third reminder, very much on this wineskins and patches idea, is we need to be careful that we don't cherry pick or proof text the Bible 
to find convenient justifications for what we want to believe about politics or whatever. I uh, used to work with this guy. He's genuinely a very great guy. I don't want to throw him under the bus. Like he's done more for <laughs> literal orphans than I have, and he's a great Christian man that I respect a lot. Um, I kind of worked for him several years ago, and one morning we were just like getting coffee out of the Keurig, and he was like, you know, Grant, I was thinking about it on my drive to the office this morning, and I was like, what? He was like, God is a capitalist. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, all right, say more. <laughs> he was like, well, you know, it's all over the book of Proverbs, you know, like, you get up in the morning and like, don't lay in bed all day, get up and work, and good things will come to you, and God rewards diligence. And then there's like in Thessalonians where it's like, um, there's people trying to freeload, and Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Like, they need some tough love, and you know, like, so to him, it's just crystal clear, and that was like his pontification for the day that he wanted to share with me. Um, and we didn't really have a chance to like get all into that, because we had work to do, but um, I thought about that over the years. And I, what I would say to him if we got into it isn't like, you're completely wrong about what those passages mean, or you're misinterpreting them. I don't think he's wrong about that. But I would just maybe want to say, like, that's half of the truth. Because <laughs> there's also a ton about, um, like, the, like, the early Christians selling everything they had and giving to everyone as they had need. Or the stuff in Ecclesiastes about, like, wealth doesn't always go to the wise, and the battle doesn't go to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all. And so there's other things going on besides merit, you know. And there's a, harsh warnings about the accumulation of wealth and the importance of generosity and taking care of the poor and things like that. And so I don't think God is a capitalist or a socialist. <laughs> um, but those are both, they both have certain legs to stand on in the scripture. But are we cherry picking? Are we saying like, these are the parts that really stand out to me that I'm like, yeah, that totally fits, that works. And then the parts that throw a monkey wrench into your system, <laughs> you just be like, eh, I don't want to think about that. I'm going to move on to the other stuff. <laughs> So we just need to watch that we don't uh, cherry pick. And so maybe for you that's like, you know, we, maybe it's very comfortable for you to think about that Jesus loved the, the poor and the marginalized, the women, the children, prostitutes, drunkards, that kind of stuff. But maybe it's kind of a monkey wrench for you to think like, well, he, he loved and extended grace and the opportunity for repentance to powerful oppressors too, the tax collectors and soldiers who are literally carrying around the sword of the Roman Empire. You know, it's not just one or the other. Or maybe that's, um, man, you know, some of these people I listen to, that we, we, we're kind of delighting in watching how foolish and evil our enemies are and like reveling in how much better we are. And that's getting pretty far from Jesus. He, he wouldn't budge on like, you need to love and forgive and pray for your enemies. And so maybe that's one of his monkey wrenches <laughs> that you can't graft onto the old garment to mix some metaphors. Or maybe if you're more like my old boss, <laughs> it would be something like, you know, Jesus takes it very personally the way that we treat the lowest people in society. And sometimes there's a lot else besides merit that's at work in people's lives. Yeah. And some of these people I listen to, like, they have a lot of good things to say, but they don't seem to be taking that as seriously as the Bible does. And so if, if we could do those three things, if we can give our fellow Christians room for conscience on debatable matters, if we can be attentive to our heart posture, if we can be careful that we're not just cherry-picking easy things to support what we want to think, uh, I think we'll do well. And the rulers and principalities that are behind our political systems, they don't have in mind that we would do that. They'd like us much more on the idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, all that track. But we have the opportunity to approach all this with love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so here's another hard transition. <laughs> um, the last example that I wanted to share about the, the a way that this parable might apply to us is that I think in our culture, like we drive down the road every day and there's churches and there are people that make them happen and the average member just kind of shows up. That's a very normal cultural way of looking at church. And I think in a way it's kind of a wineskin, an old wineskin that we need to move on from. The, the expectation that being a member of a church by default means that you show up, see your friends, have a good time, and leave. And then there's a select few <laughs> who have some extra job. They show up and bring the coffee or do sound or put out chairs or whatever. Um, so I think of like the old wineskin is kind of a, uh, maybe a, just like a thoughtless, idle participant, and the new wineskin is more like a potluck or a family meal, where it's like, unless you're a guest, like everyone has a job to do. Like if you had a, a healthy family with having a family meal, as everyone's able at their age, they would be emptying the dishwasher or getting the groceries or cooking the food or setting the table or, you know, there's like a job for everyone in a healthy family. And if someone's just kicking back watching TV while everyone else is working and be like, hey, that's not mature. <laughs> um, and so I think we find ourselves caught in a little bit of an old wineskin about, yeah, just thinking that the default expectation is to just kind of show up and be served. And we need to move forward to more of like a, a family meal or a potluck approach where it's like, well, yeah, of course I cooked a meal. Like we were going to a potluck. And that's kind of how we think about church. Um, so that's all the things that I had to share. So I just want to like conclude real quick. Um, so we're still in Luke 5. So most of this sermon series is ahead of us, you know, taking a fresh look at Jesus. And we're invited to kind of interrogate ourselves when there's the parts of Jesus that don't make any sense <laughs> or that sound absolutely crazy. We can ask ourselves, like, am I willing to humbly consider that he might know something I don't, that I might be the one that's confused or not seeing the full picture? Or maybe he's just saying something you don't want. And we can ask ourselves, am I willing to budge on this? And it'll be great if we continue through this and as we're reading and hearing the sermons um, to keep an eye out, kind of like, you know, uh, where, where there is cover, we hope for game. Like to keep an eye out for the parts of the scripture that are very confusing. And I've done a practice before where I was like, I'm just going to write down everything that sounds crazy and nonsensical to me. So I'm looking for those things because <laughs> that's where the opportunity is. Um, so let's try to take that approach as we continue through Luke and as we relate to Jesus in general. And as you decide, you know, am I willing to budge on this or not, just know that he cannot be outgiven. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we, in our church small groups, we recently did a reflection on Psalm 116. And one of the lines that stood out to me was, what shall I return to the, to the Lord for all his goodness to me? Like, how could I ever pay him back? And the more that we yield to him, the more we experience that. The more we're like, wow, I have been given so much and I could never thank him enough. And you'll never ultimately regret making room for him in your heart. He is so generous. So that's what we have to talk about today. So we'll move on, I think, to a song if we have time. And thank you. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.